From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, what is west of Westeros and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsok here for the Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, and House of Dragon podcast that loves to dig deep into the themes of the show, the lessons that are there, have fun remembering, speculate of the future, and occasionally cry for Jorah Mormont and Stannis Baratheon. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We are wrapping up our look at Season 3 of Game of Thrones. So, here we are. It's 2013. June 9th, 2013. And Season 3 is coming to a close with Episode 10 of this season, the 30th overall, titled Misa. Misa. We are going to learn all about that word a little bit later on and talk about that scene, both in story and out of story, what that scene means for Game of Thrones and its legacy. Good and bad. Director of this episode was David Nutter. The writers were Benny Alvin Weiss, cinematographer Robert McLaughlin, and editor was Oral Nori Oti. And that's uh, Sam crew that was uh, all on uh, season three, episode nine. They usually work in two-episode kind of uh, chunks, uh, if uh, memory serves, and just kind of checking the credits along the way. All right, it's me. Let's do it. Let's dig in. Let's look at this episode. What does Ken Napsack think? Hey, that's me. Season 3, episode 10. We're also going to look back a little bit at season 3 overall. And next week on the show, if you're watching in sequential order, sequential order and sequential order? No, sequential. Next week, we're going to do a live show here on the YouTube channel side and release it as a podcast, as always, and just kind of talk to take questions to you. Talk about House of the Dragon. Talk about season 3, season 4, any of the seasons. Talk about the books. Talk about the maps. Talk about your favorite sigil. I don't know. We'll talk about it. And my favorite sigil is Stannis Baratheon's Heart Aflame. Because I'm a Stannis guy. All right, let's look at the overall uh, overall uh, kind of uh, notes and thoughts here on this episode. It was a, I consider this one a good and needed follow-up to episode nine. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's some letdown. There's going to be some letdown. Season three, episode nine was, uh, it was a hard one. It was an emotional gut punch. It was also huge. It changed uh, a lot of the plot going forward. Big ramifications for what's going on at the Red Wedding and beyond even in that episode. So I think naturally, well, while we're all going into season three, episode 10, ready to close the, the series uh, season out and looking for the next uh, season of the series, you can't help but feel let down. And because of that, I, I think I still, even in this watch through, I still feel this is one of my least favorite finales of the show. Again, I'm here for every episode. Some I'm going to like more than others. That's fair. That's how it works. But uh, I don't like ranking things. But in looking back and talking about it, yeah, this episode, uh, this finale, I, you know, not one of my, um, not, I, you know, bottom bottom eight. Uh, looking at the finales. And that's been a, co- we were answering that, we answered that question before on Daily Thrones. Best, best episode one. Best finale, not counting the season eight stuff. Uh, uh, season eight final episode, kind of different category there. Uh, but what what is the best episode that, that takes you to the next season? I still think uh, season six is is just, you know, magnificent. Uh, I, I love a lot of season one and two. Season one and two, the season one finale, particularly with Jorah Mormont in his speech, and I, I want you and your wolf with me when we ride north, 300 strong, uh, you know. Ah, man, it gets you pumped for what's coming. And I think there's a lot of dread. There's a lot of relief 
in season two's finale, but there's some dread, uh, and, and and Stannis is on his thing, and you move forward, and and uh, you know, I think you're still keyed up for the victories, but also I think Daenerys's uh, the lessons learned at Karth and her stepping on out. I, I think it's a it's a big upbeat, and we'll talk about the D- Daenerys upbeat. I think that's part of what's present in this episode, again for better or worse. 5.4 million people watched this on first viewing. I think almost another million on the second showing. Uh, that, and that 5.4 million is a 28% increase from the season two finale. The show's growing. The show, by this point, is a thing. It's a thing, for sure. Uh, this particular episode was nominated for Outstanding Cinematography at the 65th Annual Emmy Awards. Uh, primetime Emmys there. That would be, of course, of Robert McLaughlin. And the last week, uh, the, uh, that episode uh, got an edi- uh, Emmy uh, for editing, I do believe. Uh, checking my notes from just last week's show, I do believe it uh, It did. Oral Noti uh, got uh, uh, no nominated for that. There we go. All right. I love looking at the uh, kind of reactions then, the legacy now of these episodes. And again, you couldn't escape that this episode just kind of had an anticlimactic feel to it. It's impossible to avoid after the Red Wedding. I think we still were emotionally recovering. That was bigger than Ned Stark's death in a way. I think Ned Stark's death had uh, giant ramifications, not for the show, but just for the pop pop culture viewing uh, uh, audience. But I think Red Wedding was just... Man, we talk about it. It takes an emotional toll. And uh, the Battle of Blackwater Bay, that's one of my favorite episodes, still one of my favorite battles on the show and uh, in the books too, but uh, on the show, but by, I think we had a different feel at the end of that one. So season two ends in a little different way. This one is, it's just, it's hard to not just think it's anticlimactic because you're still, you, you, you want to, you know, you want someone to go get revenge for the Red Wedding, you're ready to fight and now... You got uh, kind of, uh, we'll talk about the themes later on, but I think there's some themes of winning and losing. And of course, the big question of how and how you go about doing that and and whether that matters in this world. But there's a lot of winning and losing and and the Starks are losing. And that's kind of where we're at. Not a lot of uh, uplifting Stark stuff here, but you want revenge. You're you're, 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 you're kind of falling prey to that kind of line of thinking there. Because it's uh, it's a good line of thinking after what happened at the Red Wedding, so I think it can't help to but could kind of consider that. Again, when I'm talking about this episode, kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, in terms of finales, falling a little flat for me. And, and again, watching it this time around, love a lot of the moments in this episode. Love a lot of the moments in the episode, but that's kind of season three for me. Love so many of the moments. I think season three changes the direction of the story. It focuses the direction of the story. And after this, this is absolutely closing of a chapter. I, I kind of look at Game of Thrones, uh, uh, the, the TV show, in three big chapters. Season one, two, and three. Then you get a big kind of switch, including cast, including main cast, including uh, a lot of new characters start rolling in. Not a lot of new villains emerge. Four, five, and six is kind of this chapter. I think that closes... And then we go to the final chapter, seven and eight. Uh, and, and I think this that that that's what this season and this finale kind of represents to me, kind of this big turning of the page. And that can leave you confused, you know, in, in a wonderful way. Not a bad, none of this bad, but just, you just where we go now. This is no longer about Rob getting revenge, uh, justice for, for, for Ned and Catelyn Stark. No, no, they're gone. They're dead. And we're left to deal with it while this episode does a great job of setting up what's coming. And I do think it does a great job. 
Uh, there's a lot of great scenes. We'll talk about the impact and the story of, of to the story and the impact on us in these scenes. Uh, a lot of fun little foreshadowing things. Uh, we got Arya and the Hound. We got Davos Gendry. We got Stannis Davos Melisandre. We got Stannis getting the big uh, the 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 hints of the message, uh, the the thought that he's got to go north. We got Sam and Gilly meeting Bran and Mira and Jojen and that kind of connection. The return of Maester Aemon. The Greyjoys, Balon Greyjoy, Yara Greyjoy, return here in the show. Uh, the reveals, uh, we got kind of the reveal, the connection. If you hadn't been picking up on it yet on who Ramsey is, um, uh, Ramsey and Theon, you get that kind of clarity. We got Roose Bolton graduating to I'm now a bigger villain. I'm not just this kind of dour, annoying guy that's been poking at Rob for two seasons. I'm now going to be a player. Uh, you got Walter Frey as well. Well, we're going to dive into all that there and, and, and all the other things um, there with him. But... And talking about what this episode is known for and the reaction then in Legacy Now, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the end beat with Danny, And not what it means for the story, because I think it's a great thing for the story, but it, uh, we'll talk about how I think that story unintentionally, maybe, maybe a little intentionally, but unintentionally provides some false hope for Danny kind of picking up the the flag of justice in this world and, and what that might mean for Danny fans and her story going forward. I have some thoughts on that. Right or wrong. Like I said, I'm a student of Game of Thrones. I'm a student of Song of Ice and Fire. This isn't an expert speaking. This is just a well-studied student that loves to continue to learn from the show, continue to learn from the story that the books are telling, and can't wait to learn from House of Dragon and any other properties and all the animated shows and all the other wonderful rumors uh, of uh, things to come out there. Uh, but I, I, I do want to talk about the real-world ramifications of this end scene, this end beat. It is, uh, it has a, uh, it is the white savior trope at play here. And the show in 2013 did start to receive some criticisms about that and that kind of thing. And that's something that it's, Game of Thrones is not the only thing that's, uh, the only, only property that's guilty of that, right? Uh, and and it, the show took some heat, and also it was the first time, not counting some of the base, basic stuff, and there's always going to be some critics and always going to be some important um, questions to arise out of any show and out of any big property. But I think here at the end of season three, you were really starting to see Twitter change. Twitter had gone from, hey, 2011, let's follow celebrities we know and tweet jokes, to now it became a public meeting place, to air grievances, to push for changes, to complain and to get loud about things, uh, some of it bad. I think I think there's some a lot of bad things about that, but I think there's also some good things to come out of what social media really quickly turned into around this time, which is amplifying voices that aren't uh, normally heard and and raising important questions, even of things you love. And I I think it's hard for me in 2021 to watch this particular episode and not see all of the criticisms again in the final beat with Daenerys Targaryen. Um, a uh, 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 golden hair, blonde uh, uh, woman being lifted high uh, by um, uh, nothing but a, a wonderful sea, but a sea of uh, people of color that she's just freed and she's their their savior, their Misa, their hero. And, it, and it's great for the story of Danny, but it, it definitely looks, uh, it looks dated. Uh, and uh, it always was, and it was then, to be clear. Again, this, this isn't uh, new criticism that emerged over the years. In 2013, this was already popping up. But I think... Uh, at, at no point am I here to defend the choice made here by Game of Thrones. I'm here to dive into then and to dive into now, uh, and wade those waters and 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 uh, you know hit the thread those needles as best I can. Um, 
George R. Martin has gone on many shows and many YouTube clips and, and interviews and, and, and provided he's been asked about this directly. Uh, and again, his involvement with the show starts to change around this time, I think, and going in season four. Um, but this, you know, he, he was front and center for a lot of it. And he's always probably going to be front and center. And I think now uh, he has a little bit more of a, hey, I just was, uh, I just sold the show. I was there. Here, uh, you, you had the idea, you had the feeling that he had a little bit more to do with some of the things, which may, again, may or may not be true. But he has, he has provided a reason saying, hey, that we, we, we cast locally at Morocco and, and you're going to get Moroccan people and that's why. And that's an answer he's provided. It's not necessarily, it's, it's not an official answer from HBO or Ben Evan Weiss, but that's just uh, what he's gone around or what had uh, he had been saying back at the time. But what's interesting, you know, to me, it's a choice to me. I do consider it a choice that they made to, to cast like that because it's different than the books. It looks different than the books. Uh, and I think George is probably, he, he seems by season four, he starts getting a little, you could, I've always sent a little more grumpiness in George and kind of going, hey, that's nah, not in my books. We'll talk about the season four scene uh, in a second here that caused him, I think, to really, for the first time, I noticed to do that. Uh, but it, it, but it, it, this becomes a choice because in the books, um, Yunkai and also just Slaver's Bay as a whole is not described with one, um, one kind of people uh, being uh, enslaved and oppressed here. Uh, it is, in fact, discussed that the, the slavers of uh, Slaver's Bay are, are grabbing a lot of folks who will look very different. And that's kind of the point. They are just in this horrible position of power uh, and, and abusing and grabbing and enslaving anyone they can. That's kind of a built-in built in story. So this, the, the casting reasons or not, which again, I think logistically there's probably some truth to that. I'm prepared to say that. But uh, it is it's still at the end of the day becomes a choice and a choice to, to take it from book to screen in a different way. So therefore, this scene, uh, it, it just, it just, it, it doesn't stand up as as well. Um, again, maybe it never did, but it just, it doesn't stand up for me. Uh, I see, I see the problems in it, but I still think I, I, I'm able to have that conversation and over here, but also have the conversation about just what it means in story. And I think it's a great moment in the story. And and there you go. But uh, this, it's interesting, interesting to look back. Uh, it's very interesting to look back. And think for me, and again, sex position, um, some of the, maybe the choices, the choices around Danny and Cal Drogo on the, on the wedding night, um, the show had already taken some heat. But come here we are in 2013, come this finale. This is the first time I remember there being some bigger questions asked about Game of Thrones and its place in society. And then we get to season four and the sex scene at the body, at the foot of uh, Joffrey's body with Cersei and Jamie. Uh, which has uh, a, a non-consensual feel to it, uh, at least at the beginning of the scene, fair to say, and how, again, that was slightly different than the books, and that's the first time I remember George R. R. Martin really saying, that's not how I wrote it, um, and kind of distanced himself a little bit, not that George doesn't have uh, some weird choices he makes, too, as well. And it's, I, I, I think it's part of the legacy of the show to look back and say Game of Thrones uh, would become under, under fire more times later on, and I think part of that is, and I say this in a good way, society does change. And Game of Thrones is from, began, not ended, but began in a little bit of another era. It's, it's, it's kind of conceived, sold, developed, shot again twice with that pilot in the late 2000s. 
Into the early 2010s, 2011 it debuts. We're in 2013 for the third season. And, and it doesn't seem that long ago, right? But that's like if we're in 2000, 2001 right now talking about a show that aired in 1990, 1991 range, right? And we're talking about a, a, an episode in 1993 and 2001. Just think of the big changes that happened in that time frame. We're 10 years on from the start of the show. At times, it's a different era. It all still looks and feels the same because time moves that fast. Trust me, the older you get, the faster it goes. But I still think Game of Thrones emerged from another time. When I don't say this to be make excuses or anything about it, I'm a stand-up comic and comedy and entertainment and everything, it changes. It needs to change. If you don't think it doesn't change, just look around. Grab a joke book from the 1920s. Styles change. Society changes, and that's always a good thing. I always say don't fight change, find your place in change. And I think for a while Game of Thrones was uh, guilty, and maybe even and some would argue maybe in, up until the end, uh, didn't necessarily try to find its place in change, and a lot of it was, well, this is what the story, we're, we're following some of the stuff in the, in the books. And I'm not just talking about individual castings, but just overall stuff. And then there was this time period, it's an HBO show. It's HBO we can not only can we swear like we want to, we can have sex like we want to, we can put uh, uh, dangerous, edgy things up there. And I'm not like accusing Game of Thrones of being an edgelord show, but it, uh, it was from that era. I mean, I used to watch Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire um, would get it, you know, just in terms of just basic, uh, just throwing the sex on the screen. That's the Game of Thrones reputation of, of uh, the sex position. Uh, and again, uh, you know, uh, no prude over here. Sexing has its place and sexing can be important to the story. And I think it's used even by season three, the sex position starts to change in Game of Thrones. But I think it was a generally, again, you could probably find individual critics and individual voices who were already saying some of the stuff to Game of Thrones. But I think the sex position specifically, but season one, it was almost a joke and it was almost a celebrated. It was almost a wink and a nudge. That starts to fade, but then I, I think by season four, uh, you go up to the mutineers and Carl Tanner and that scene, and, and there's some, uh, some some exposition happening with some sex behind in the background with the mutineers and Craster's, uh, uh, survive, the surviving daughters up there. And it's not received well because it's 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 not. Uh, I mean, there's nothing about the scene that makes it think it's consensual sex. It it it, it wasn't needed, um, and it was no longer taken as oh fun Game of Thrones and their sex position. Uh, I think people were right to question some of the choices. So I love uh, going back and just kind of seeing where this show lay, lay, lay down on the timeline of society and, and our viewing habits. And when you look at this white savior trope, uh, you could still do this moment. You could still cast very differently and you could still have all the power and purpose in this scene. You would just now... Do it differently, and you, and hopefully you would do it differently. And I think that's okay. And I think that's not to completely re release Game of Thrones uh, from any guilt here or take Benioff and Weiss off the hook, especially Benioff. I'm looking at Benioff, but they're they're just they're 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 doing something. They're trying to do something different, and they and and I think probably for a while we're getting away with something that was. Um, yeah, it's HBO. Let's just do this. We're just telling this brutal, dark story. That's why these uh, guys are uh, raping these girls in the back, right? I mean, it's just it's just a brutal, dark story, right? Right? It's about Carl Tanner and the exposition. 
And I think the show started to get questioned more and more. It got questioned up to the very end. I'm not talking about plot choices. I'm not talking about character twists. I'm talking about casting choices, um, uh, the, the plot decisions based a, 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 around rape and all these things that it's like a lot of them were, were, were old tropes, failed tropes, tropes that never should have been there in the first place. And I think looking at this episode, this jumps out more than anything, that this is uh, the first major criticism that the show does face for me again individual voices along the path first two seasons i'm sure they were there uh but this is the first time and i think it's a good conversation to have um but the scene is there it's part of the story we always like to engage with the story as it's presented with us here our uh, theme uh, over on force center provided by the great joseph scrimshaw scrimshaw so uh that's my thought again one person's take on it not a not a not a saying none of this is fact i'm just looking back through my own lens and trying as best I can to look through uh, society's lens and, and uh, open any conversations in the comments about that there. Uh, some people are going to have opinions about it. Some people are not going to care. Some people are going to call it a, um, a, you know, a woke agenda coming at Game of Thrones. Whatever. Whatever. But it's there and it stands out to me and it doesn't completely work for me uh, now as much as it did then. Because hopefully we all grow and we all start to look at things uh, a little differently, and when you go back and look at it, it's it's dicey to go back and and look at sins in the past, but it's important to still do it and to still see and hopefully move forward from there. That's uh, some general thoughts on that. Um, but again, is it is it a powerful moment? Yeah, I still think it is. I still think it is. I still think it's there, and it works for me on a lot of the, the story levels. Uh, but also, we'll talk about it in a second. I think it also kind of creates some false hope for fans of Danny who are needing a ray of light following the darkness of the Red Wedding. Well, let's talk about a lot of uh, the other impacts uh, that this episode has on us as, audio, as the audience or on the story. I mentioned before, I'm fascinated by this episode uh, kind of being the graduation for Roos Bolton. Yay, we're cheering for Roos. Roos Bolton, without a doubt, present for, for season two, season three. By season three, you know, we definitely don't like him. You might not have liked him in season two. And again, I always, I always try to approach these, these um, reviews, these lookbacks as someone, as not just not show only, but what the show is presenting to us. Uh, there's a lot of people probably knew what Roos was going to become. And we don't have the end of his story yet in the books. But season two... Roos was just this, he was one of the many grumpy guys, maybe having some problems with Rob Stark. I didn't pay too much attention to it. I liked it. I was, he liked him in the sense he was a good actor. And maybe he had some good points, but I don't know. He seemed extreme, whatever. And then this season, but he builds and builds and builds. And, you know, by the time of the Red Wedding, you're already kind of not trusting this guy. You already kind of don't like him. You've seen what's happened with uh, the Car Starks. You, 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 you sense Rob is... Um, is definitely lose his way. They have the they shoot Rob without the the armor a lot uh, leading up to red and the red wedding stuff. We talked about that. Rob is seen and presented as vulnerable, and when it's all lost and and and, and Roos is the, is the man uh, delivering the words from the Lannisters and and uh, along with Walder Frey uh, answering those letters from Tywin, he graduates. Graduation day. He moves up and he's in a position of power in the story and he's in a position for us as viewers. Again, the turning of the page, uh, kind of a new new era of the show, seasons four, five, and six. Uh, and Roos will be very key to all of that there. So uh, this it's impactful from that point of view, impactful to us as uh, viewers. I also like, in terms of just impact on us as the viewing audience, 
if you had not known anything about the Red Wedding and you're sitting there watching it and your your jaws on the floor and you're and you're frustrated and you're angry and you're crying and and and, and you're just horrified by by the Red Wedding, maybe in the back of your head, again, I'm saying from a non book reader point of view, maybe in the back of your head you're thinking, maybe I didn't really see that. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, Catelyn didn't look like it turned out well for Catelyn, but maybe she's all right. And I'm not even talking about Stoneheart stuff. Uh, Rob, I mean, Rob took a lot of arrows. That didn't look good. Maybe he's all right. It's the old, uh, you know, if you don't see him die on screen, maybe they didn't die, right? Again, Red Wedding, it's pretty, it's pretty clear, right? Pretty clear, not good. So I, I, I like, I don't love it in terms of its brutal scene to watch, but that, that episode about, um, that, that the top of the episode with, uh, uh, beheaded uh, um, Grey Wind and uh, uh, Rob's decapitated body and the King of the North chant, the taunting chant, and Arya seen and seen it. And the Hound, by the way, being disgusted by it, kind of proof that Hound does more proof, I should say, that, that the Hound does have a heart. It's, it's just like any doubts about the Red Wedding. That really impacted us. There's no doubt. That's what you're seeing. And that was, I think, the thing I remember the most. Because the episode starts, it begins with Roos going up the stairs and the Red Wedding is still the the still going technically. There's still slaughter and Starks out there. And if you played the Telltale game, uh, hey, House, House Foresters, uh, you're dealing with some stuff there right now too. Uh, and and I just I was still kind of like a week after. Here it is, a week after the Red Wedding, still in disbelief. And seeing Roos go up to the top there and, and looking at the battle below, and that that it's it's a great shot. I, I just remember thinking, I just like someone's gonna come, like another part of Rob's army, maybe maybe the Karstarks, uh, Night's Watch, uh, Blackfish, like someone's someone's gonna come save the day, right? Uh, and despite again, uh, I talked a lot about how Game of Thrones does break your heart, but does so to kind of say there's always the hope and there's always the belief that it, that you've, it can always get better and you can move forward. I think there's a little strain of that in a lot of Game of Thrones as, as dark as the show could be. And I think I still had that. And then seeing seeing Rob, seeing the body of Rob and, and the, the head of the wolf there and the taunting chants, it just, it affected me. It affected me thinking, oh, this, this really happened. No happy ending coming up here. Another thing I think impacted the story, there's some great stuff. Uh, with Tywin Lannister and the great Joffrey scene, the small council when they get the word of Rob's death, and the uh, we'll talk about uh, you know any man who has to say he's king is no true king. Great scene, great Tywin stuff here. We've talked on this podcast feed a while ago. Andres Cabrera uh, had come on, of course, he's part of the show here too. Um, we talked about how we kind of love Tywin, and a lot of the reasons I think I'd say I love Tywin, not just. Charles Dance is an amazing performer. But a lot of it has to do with stuff in this episode and the previous uh, episodes here in, uh, in season three. But I think one of the impacts of the story here is he, um, Tyrion uh, gets the full scope of his father's hate for him. And that comes in the, after the, he, after Tywin sends the king to bed without supper, uh, asks Tyrion to stay around and they have that conversation about Sansa. He, you've got to impregnate her. You've got to carry on the family legacy, which is so strong and uh, is such a strong uh, theme and driving factor for Tywin. But this reveal that he wanted to kill Tyrion and, and take him out to the water, the ocean, just let the waves take him away and drown him. And, and he didn't because you're a Lannister, which sounds so noble from Tywin, but really it's, it's horror. This is absolute horror for Tyrion, and he gets the full scope. And that definitely impacts us as a viewer, but I think 
to me, it's one of those. It's one of the final breaking things for Tyrion as we go into season four and what's going to happen with the purple wedding and the trial of Tyrion and then the end result here with with uh, Tyrion taking out Tywin. Uh, all that season four stuff we have ahead of us. I, I look at one of these moments as just in the way Dinklage is playing it too. It is a great moment of just this truly impacts him. It is the full scope of his father's hate, almost as if it's like it's worse than I thought. I know my dad doesn't like me. The whore and the drinking, all the other things. Yeah, and he's, you know, essentially mentally abused me my entire life. But maybe deep down there's a part of him that, that likes me. He keeps, keeps me around for some of these meetings. He put me in a position of power as the hand of the king uh, when he was out in season two. I'm good at playing the game. I think Tyrion has some of that in his, uh, in his brain. And uh, no, this moment probably knocks that up, knocks that out. And sets him up for what's going to come. And when it breaks, it breaks. And I think he knows that uh, going back to some moments like this, that this is this is it. this is what my father thinks of me. He would have killed me, but for my last name. Uh, and uh, a lot of father uh, stuff going on here in this episode. A lot about uh, the right name and the wrong names or the lack of names in this town. We got that Shay scene with Varys uh, when he tries to send her away. Uh, a lot about that going on there. Um. One final, uh, what, two two little impact moments I want to talk about, but uh, the, the Greyjoy's return, uh, Yara and uh, Balon, and, and we get, uh, Yara gets this kind of, uh, you know, it's a great moment with her father, talking about bad fathers, and the right kind of uh, supporting of the family and family name, and the wrong kind of supporting. We see that on display a lot in this episode, uh, even with Gendry and his blood relation to Stannis. There's a lot about that there. Um. Yara, in a way, becomes someone that we we root for, right? I don't know what you're feeling about Yara. She doesn't, you know, this is the her return to the show. She's obviously more prominent in season two. I don't think a lot of people love the Greyjoys. They're not a warm, friendly bunch. And, uh, you know, Theon goes through some things, and uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to watch. I think there's some wonderful performers in these roles. Uh, I'm not saying hard to watch in terms of, like, boring or... Uh, not effective. I just, you know, great. I don't know a ton of people outside of like myself who are like, really, I'm really interested in the Greyjoy story. Uh, but I think at this moment, Yara is a character that we we have an affinity for, and uh, her standing up to her father, who has shown that he's he's she's the favored uh, you know offspring um, from Balon. I think it's a powerful moment. It's it's almost an inspirational moment. I'm going to take the fifty best warriors. And we know now, we have the hindsight to, to look back, so no, it doesn't necessarily work. Um, it's a failed mission in a way. Um, but uh, I think it's key to the, the development of Theon and where he ends up. But I, I really do like this moment. I think it, it, it impacts maybe me more than others uh, and definitely impacts the story in the sense of Yara now has this, this purpose. Um, and I think she kind of carries that through with her, her, with her brother all the way through. So I like that moment. Final one here, final uh, impact on the story. I've been, I've been teasing this one here. A lot of focus uh, on the end of this episode on, on on kind of this renewed feeling of hope, and the hope is focused on Danny and her story. So we've got the Yunkai, the Misa moment, and it's interesting. I was reading, I was going back and reading some old reviews today, and several people kind of looked at like it. it it's also anticlimactic for her story because coming out of Astapor and uh, the acquiring of the Unsully, Unsullied. Uh, Unsully is uh, the guy who didn't fly, fly the plane in the Hudson Bay to save everybody. Uh, the Unsullied and everything. And and that that is a hero moment that is just iconic. 
Dracarys. We all love that moment. And this this does not hold up to it. It's a different kind of ending, and I don't think I don't think you could have should have done it the other way. I don't think you stretch out Astapor to end, and then season four is Yunkai. I I think they were right to get us um, focused on Marine in season four. Uh, you know, and it's and it, I think it's a good thematic end to Danny's journey in season three. She begins by needing an army. Um, she has growing power. She gets the army. She uses uh, violence and power, her position of power to do it. She, she, she frees the Unsullied, sets sights on Yunkai. We talked about it's one of the big kind of things in season three is Danny realizes I have this power and it is no longer just about conquering and no longer about returning to Westeros for what I think is mine and what I feel is mine. It's, it's now about using who I am, where I've come from, and the power I have now to do good, to liberate. Jorah even says at the end of, end of the episode, because she's doubting whether, whether the people of Yunkai will come out. People grow to love their chains. Jorah says, you liberated them, you didn't conquer them. Um, so a lot of that, I think, um, fuels Danny Ford. But it, 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 and, the, and the people of Yunkai come out and proclaim her Misa, mother, and she, she saved the day. And it, I does, do think it works at the end of her, uh, her arc. It confirms that her choice was right for me. Uh, that the choice at this point in her life and career, if you will, uh, she hasn't retired yet. I think I think she could look at it and be like, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. I wasn't sure. I made this decision at, at, at the gates of Yunkai. I'm going to use my power for good. I'm going to liberate. I'm going to break the chains and eventually maybe break that wheel. Not sure if it was worth it. It is worth it. They came out there. there. I don't think she's doing it to be, for the praise, um, but I think her going out to the people is accepting the love, accepting their position of power, and that's going to carry, go right into Marine, and we're going to have a lot of problems in Marine. And that's where Danny gets frustrating in a way. Uh, Andres Cabrera and I have always talked about that. We get a little frustrated with Danny because we love her so much. And Marine, she goes through a lot, and that's where the story starts to twist. But that's what's coming. Right now, we're in this moment of hope. And we are down and out, man. We we have just all experienced the red wedding, and now we have this, and this is hope and hope we can latch on to. Weird connection, but it's, uh, you know you, you hear in pop culture discussions you have the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy, and then a short while later, a couple months later, here come the Beatles, here comes the British invasion, and it was like America latched on to that feeling of joy. Because collectively, whether they knew it or not, they needed it. I think as an audience, whether we knew it or not, we needed Danny in this moment. Because I remember uh, when Ned Stark is uh, beheaded, I, I had a couple conversations with friends who were like, this is, this is Jon Snow's story now. Story now. Jon Snow is going to save the day. He's, he's going to make those Lannisters pay for what they did to his father. Then, it's, then it becomes Rob's, Rob Stark. And Rob Stark is going to get justice for his, for his father. And Rob even has lines about that. There's a lot about that going on. They're going to get justice. And Catelyn, she's making some big decisions, maybe mistakes, but she's making some decisions for the good of her family, uh, for justice, to save her children, to keep her family together. And suddenly, boom, in a blink of an eye, all that's gone, and our hope is crushed. And I did talk about last week. You can go look at last week's episode, the why of the Red Wedding, the whore of the Red Wedding. I think it is... Um, there's a little bit of spit on it for me of, of, of trying to push forward. And Game of Thrones reminds you time and time again, bad things happen. But every time you find yourself in a position as a Game of Thrones fan, 
to think bad things are probably going to happen. You choose to, you choose to, you choose hope. You choose to believe that maybe this time it won't happen because that's in us. That's our survival instincts. That's why our hearts keep beating. And I think it's an important, important uh, thing that Game of Thrones is doing there, but it, we, we get our heart broken every time because we believe. Well, here in this moment, I think the show is saying, look at the, look at this hope. Danny is over in Essos. She's over at the far side of the world. At points during this, this uh, season, uh, you know, Joffrey and Tywin have that great scene. People are still, you know, people in Westeros aren't caring as much as, as Danny about Danny as they were in season one and two. You don't have Robert Baratheon saying, we got to go murder her now. You don't have even uh, Tyrion and Varys having that conversation of, you know, that's, a, that's another battle for another time. Let's focus on this game here. Season three, she's really off doing her thing and she's growing in power. Now it's legit. I think a lot of people at this point were thinking, it's time for her to go. Let's go west. Let's take that throne. And we needed that hope and destroy those Lannisters. And that that maybe became our goal. I'm just, just speculating here, man. Just talk about it again. I said, not an expert student of all this. And I think this episode intentionally ends with this kind of upbeat thing. Just like season two, Danny's free of what's going on at Karth. She's no longer wandering the red waste. And now she's got her sight sets on uh, going west. Getting a ship, going west. Season three, I need an army. I get an army. Now I've got some power. Now I'm going to use that power. And then I do believe it was D.B. Weiss that said in the, in the, in the extras on this episode that she, she needed an army. She got an army. And then as I insert, she got her power. But now she's got her people. And that's kind of what the, the why of this scene for them is they put it in there. She has, but she's receiving this love. She, is, she has, in, in her view, and the facts in front of her, liberated her people now. First Astapor, now Yunkai, and she's going to go to Marine, and then the rest of the world, right? And we can't help but be caught up in that joy. That's not the end of the story. And that wasn't the point of the story. That victory after victory after victory, liberation after liberation after liberation, Danny's on the throne, happy ending. They weren't telling that story. They never were telling that story. Jon Snow, hero to be, king to be, secret king to be, wants to be a hero, learns in season three, being a hero, wanting to be a hero, two different things. His goals start to change. What he's fighting for starts to change. He has the big... Big uh, breakup scene last week with Egret, but now the breakup is really confirmed. And he keeps saying, I got to go home. Talk about that in a second. But what I think um, it doesn't mean in this moment for John, John's journey is not to be a hero, be a hero, be a hero, get the throne, save the day, win the day. Danny's idea, not Danny's uh, story is not get the throne, win the day. They're telling a different story. Just you can't help fall for the hope right here. And I don't think that's any of our faults as viewers. None of us are guilty here. We needed this ray of hope. But looking back, man, looking back, this was the replacement for the hope of the Starks getting justice. It's an interesting little moment. And I think we filled the blank in a lot of the way. Again, just my experience. Uh, I know people view it differently there. 
foreshadowing things with more meaning. Talking about that now, these are the things that looking back, especially after eight seasons, you can go back and either they'll tug on your heartstrings a little bit or, uh, you know, maybe they uh, have great meaning later on. Just rolling down the list here. Gendry saved, and you, you can begin the rowing and rowing uh, wherever he is, lost at sea jokes, but uh, Davos saves him, and it is for another day, and it is for an important role. Uh, I uh, absolutely, uh, you know, uh, Gendry's got to be there to save the day uh, later on. And uh, so it's a, it's a little bit of a butterfly effect here. Uh, the big one uh, for me, uh, being a Stannis fan, Stannis uh, gets the word. The whole situation with Davos. Davos now knows how to read, lies, and says, Mathos taught me, not his daughter, not Stannis' daughter. And now we know Stannis feels he's got to go north. And he'll get there eventually. And season four is about that. Uh, climb climb north, uh, getting north and recruiting and, and Davos going out and speaking on behalf of Stannis. And I do like it as a Stannis fan, talking about more meaning. There's so many great moments with Davos yelling at Stannis here, even in these final moments here of just like, fine, you kill me, but this isn't you, man. Winning the kingdom by black magic, it isn't you. He tells Stannis that plan. Tell, tell Stannis that plainly. Stannis doesn't fully believe it. He even makes a joke about, see, that fire god you hate so much. Now the fire god's saving you. Melisandre says you have a part to play, which ends up being true. I love some of the looks. Talk about things with more meaning. Just some of the looks with Melisandre, Priest Van Houten, and uh, Liam Cunningham as Davos Seaworth. Some of the looks they have here really connect with their ongoing story, their ongoing tension, and their ending as Davos watches her fade away in um, uh, The Long Night, which I, I, is, is one of my favorite uh, moments in the show. I love that moment. I love, uh, I love the story of Melisandre and um, the weird, crazy, red-headed, witchy arc uh, that she goes through. And this is, a, this is a key moment. She starts to switch. Remember, she's, she's maybe crawling for answers, scrambling for answers, and I think she gets one here. And I, I, I choose to believe... For the most part, she believes in this, that it's not just um, any other motive. I think she believes this is the great war. This is this has to happen. Remember, you know, the, the great other versus R'hllor is kind of overall, doesn't factor by word into the show, but it's still kind of the overall to, overarching um, ice and fire, light and dark kind of battle. So she she this, this does track for her. I think she, she believes it. Uh, one little one here. Uh, I loved Varys' quiet pain. Conleth Hill... Um, he and uh, Aiden Gillen as uh, Baelish don't have a ton to do in season three as other seasons. Always tragic when we can't get a lot of them because they're so wonderful. I was watching this one day and, and during the scene where Joffrey's delivering the, the, the news of Rob's death to Tyrion and, and the small council, there's a shot of, there's a shot of, uh, of um, Varys in the background and just the pain and disgust on his head, uh, on his face. Man, it's just, it, it's... It just so reminds me of a lot of season one stuff with Varys is just telling everyone who will listen, telling that Stark, I do this for the realm because someone has to. And the uh, Targaryen restoration, uh, a lot of that stuff that's uh, got obviously you know some deeper stuff in the, the books and just more plot in the books. You're going to always have that more. But I think this being that theme for Varys, everything for the realm, for the realm. And uh, he has the great, conversation with Shay about the wrong name and, and we'll always be we'll always be second class to everyone here um, so he's got to do he's there he's amongst the high class to fight for as best he can the realm and those outside those walls and I just there's a great moment of him just kind of broken heart, hearted and angry and disgusted in the back uh, I do like this the, the brand story the rat cook 
has more meaning now. When you think about Arya's later baking skills, it has some thematic uh, re relevance, of course, with um, uh, the code and the killing of the guests and all that kind of stuff. But I think just just the rat cook story uh, and, and the cooking of, of the king's son into a pie. I wonder if Bran told that story at any point to Arya and she was like, let me get a pen for that recipe. Um, going back to Roose Bolden, um, this one has like, I always like to look at this section as things with more meaning going forward in the story. But I love uh, Roose Bolton in this moment when he's when he when, when Walder Frey's asking and talking to him about how horrible it must have been working for this uh, uh, boy uh, king, and Roose says, you know, perhaps if he's a trifle less arrogant. But he says this line: he ignored my advice at every turn. I love that line from Roose Bolton because in this roll call of like a supercut of all the times in season two. Uh, and into season three, but a lot of season two stuff, right from the moment you meet, meet Roose Bolton, he's fighting him. And I love going back to those episodes and it gives it more meaning going forward. But I love going to this one, especially in 2013, and just thinking, yeah, let me think about Roose. Let me pull up the uh, DVD Blu-ray collection there and watch it. Yeah, Roose fights him there. Roose doesn't agree with him there. Roose rolls his eyes there. It's all there for you. Sometimes as a fan, you're not focusing on it there. Uh, I think it's also... Uh, little foreshadowing, a little more meaning of uh, the why of the wall and how the wall uh, essentially, we believe, uh, the beginning put there to protect the realms of all men. And the story and the use of the wall has changed over the years. The threat of the White Walkers seems to have been long gone, dead, if it was even there at all. It's all a myth, right? We don't truly believe it now. But here's Samuel Tarley, who has seen it, who knows it's all true. And he's got a, a wilding woman with him, a, a free folk woman, Gilly. And I love the, the scene with uh, Peter Vaughn as uh, Eamon Targaryen, Maester Eamon, returning to the show. Um, it had been a while since we'd seen him, or quite frankly, anyone at the wall. Pip's back for this episode, too. And I love the, you know, Maester Eamon's concerned about the breaking of the vows in terms of, uh, you know, did Sam have sex with Gilly? He has, uh, hasn't broken that vow yet. But uh, I love that Sam returns returns it to him with a little bit of fire. Uh, returns to him with the Night's Watch vow and reminding him that it's protector of the realms of men. The realms of men. And it's a great moment. It's a great scene. But I love just applying a lot more meaning to this now because that becomes a key focal point of the show. Of this threat, even Stannis is like this. This this army, of the dead, Melisandre is telling him is going to destroy us all. All this, this war of five kings, that ain't anything. And a lot of characters keep that with them going forward. Davos being one, Jon Snow being a major one, and eventually uh, a lot of other people who believe and, and go south with this news and this idea that none of this matters. Only thing that matters is up there. This war for the dawn. And I love that here's Sam saying, "No, we must protect all realms," and that becomes this big sticking point going forward. Uh, with Jon Snow, and it's kind of what gets Jon killed. His belief that nope, we 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 are we should uh, let everyone uh, through, uh, protect them as ours, uh, as us. We need the free folk, um, uh, and, and that's the way to look at it. And that's kind of we threw up the wall, a little magic sprinkled in to protect us from the White Walkers, not to keep them out. And John's learning that. John learns that from Egret. John learns that all through season two and three. Now here's Sam learning it in his own way because he's seen what is coming. I love that little moment. I love that little moment. Things with more meaning. Shay stays. They try to uh, send her off. I've always debated. I, I and maybe the answer somewhere. I'm talking show only. Uh, if Tyrion did send Varys, or I've always taken it as Varys is kind of like, look, I'm kind of rooting for Tyrion. 
You are a complication. I kind of like you. You're kind of cool. We've hung out. You got to go. And whether or not Tyrion actually knew or not is, uh, to me, the great debate. Um, and again, the answer may exist. Uh, sometimes I'm not concerned about the answer, just that the head can and what it means thematically. And how that kind of, the, the Shea starts breaking. She's already been broken. She's already kind of snapped a little bit over this whole Tyrion and Sansa thing. And it's not the the fun love of uh, end of season one, season two, Shay and Tyrion. It's not, uh, it's not hot and sexy and flowers and fireworks right now. It's something different. And I think this is the moment you can point to of, much like with Tyrion learning the full scope of the hate of his father, this is when Shay kind of learns what she's really up against, and it's going to be a, a battle she unfortunately loses. Um, so uh, this moment has more meaning for me. Uh, two uh, two moments that uh, Jamie returns, damaged, but perhaps too damaged for Cersei. It's not the happy reunion I think they both thought. It's a great moment, such a little tiny moment. Like, it's such a small beat in the show. But uh, two actors at the top of the game just playing it so well and him just looking down at that hand and, and looking at that now. And I remember at the end of season three kind of taking it again. Oddly, oddly, I just oddly, I think we Game of Thrones fans find ourselves rooting for Jamie and Cersei at times, which is weird to say. And maybe you weren't rooting for him by season eight. You wanted him to, to break free. Totally get that. But here... He returns and it's kind of like, oh, it's a reunion. And uh, I look back at it now and it's just kind of that mixture of horror, um, relief, love, uh, and disgust from Cersei and just confusion. And, and uh, he has returned to her broken and, uh, and where that's going to go. It's interesting to look at that moment now. Final one in terms of just foreshadowing slash things with more meaning. More with things with more meaning than foreshadowing on this particular one. Uh, in the... John and Egret breakup scene, part two. She is uh, clearly missing with the arrows. We've already, it's already been established. She does not miss that hunting uh, moment there uh, early in uh, season three, earlier on. Um, we know now she's, she's missing. She's too emotional. She's too heartbroken and she just doesn't want to kill him. She wants to, but she doesn't want him. When John says, you know, he, I do believe his loyalty to the Night's Watch is pretty, it's clear. It's, it's been there. He's learning um, uh, what it is to truly be a hero and how that kind of means not wanting to be a hero and who are you fighting for. That's one of the big things that is changing in John, and I think that will change dramatically, of course, by the end of season four and into season five. This we know. Uh, but when he says, you know, I, so I get I get here now when he's saying I'm loyal. I was always loyal. But he, he says a few times, I have to go home now. I have to go home. And eventually he gets there, but it won't be home forever. And that includes Winterfell. And I love looking at the moments where John's like, I got to get back. I can't stay in this cave. You and I can't be together. I'm loyal to the Night's Watch. It was always kind of the part of the plan. But really, it's just perhaps a denial of what the truth is. And I th he's got a lot of things going through his head. I'm not saying he should have stayed in that cave. I'm just saying it's interesting to watch him do these scenes. I've got to go home and to know that in truth, that's not going to be his home forever. Uh, it has a little bit more emotional resonance for me when I look back at these scenes. Favorite moments and scenes and lines. There's a lot through here. I love the little line of Tyrion. We get Tyrion's own list uh, before Sansa learns the horror of what happened. A little bit more of a lighter scene where she uh, has misheard sheep shifting. Uh, uh, Tyrion's about to explain that maybe you heard the word shifting wrong, uh, but uh, Pod uh, interrupts him with the news to go to the small council. So right before all that horror, I love the Tyrion moment where... The two guys make fun of him, and he has his own list. And he says the line, anyone named Desmond Craighall must be a pervert. Great Terry line. 
The uh, favorite moments and scenes. I love everything about um, Joffrey insulting Tywin and Tywin's reactions. It's great in the books, too. Eventually, if uh, if you guys out there are starting the books, maybe finally after all these years, uh, it, it is uh, you, it's from Tyrion's point of view. You get a little bit more insight into uh, Tywin trying his best to suppress a murderous rage here. But I think Charles Dance plays it so well. And Jack Leeson plays it so well. Everyone in the scene plays it so well. Uh, the great line from Tywin, any man who must say I am the king is no true king. Um, sometimes that line is misquoted as is no king at all. But um, any man who must say I, I am the king is no true king. Love that there. And then the follow-up with, with Tyrion after, you know, you've sent the most powerful men of Westeros to bed without dinner. Do you really think a crown gives you power? And we know the answer is no. We especially know that when Tywin's around. And combining this with the earlier uh, moment in season three where uh, Joffrey's upset of not getting briefed and uh, Tywin climbs the steps and you are being counseled at this very moment. Love that scene. Love combining with here. It's this weird thing where I just love Tywin in a way. And I love to root against him. I didn't want him to win the Battle of Blackwater Bay. I wanted my guy Stannis to win. But, man... He's, he, when he's right, he's right sometimes. And in this world, he does things right. But we'll talk a little bit about what um, the things he's doing wrong that are already essentially costing him. But this is a great moment. This is a memorable moment. And it's one of those uh, Taiwan moments. This is why I own the Taiwan Funko Pop, I think, is because of this scene. Sam and Bran uh, meeting is an underrated good scene for me. I just like them together. It's kind of fun at this point. You know, you're so, the, the characters are so spread out. And it's like, it's almost season one vibes for me. Of Sam. It's almost like Sam, they show up there at the night forward and Sam meets Bran, sees uh, the wolf and is like, oh, I remember season one of Game of Thrones. Yeah, you're definitely uh, Jon Snow's brother. Like that moment there. I like, there's a great moment from uh, Gilly, Hannah Murray, uh, when Bran's talking about needing to go north and Jojen's talking about going north and Gilly just says there's nothing north but death. Um, love that line, love the delivery. Um, so, and also, it's things with more meaning, too, I guess we could add this. But uh, Jojen talking about kings and armies not being able to stop the army of the dead. And and uh, Sam saying, you know, y and you're gonna. And essentially, yeah, that's true. And essentially, it plays out that way. Yes, we need Arya. We need Theon. We need everyone. We need everyone to go on and play their part and to make the choices that will move them forward to get to the final battle there uh, at, at Winterfell. But, yeah, Bran is, uh, is, the, is the bait. Bran's target. And this moment now is... Um, more uh, importance too as well. I uh, do love line on the reveal of uh, Sam killing the White Walker, Mira saying no one's killed one for thousands of years and Sam saying, well, su suppose someone had to be the first. Uh, the Flea Bottom Connection. So I, think that's a, I think that's a Kermit the Frog song, right? Flea Bottom Connection. Davos and Gendry uh, having the great conversation. And yes, we can make all the jokes about Gendry goes in rows and rows and rows, but I think, uh, it's a great scene for Davos. Uh, Davos is kind of a heart and soul and steadfast guy, a, uh, moral barometer for a lot of the characters in, in the show itself. And, um, uh, this works. This works. And what's interesting to me when you, when you relate it to my guy Stannis, I think Stannis loves to deliver the punishments that are deserved he loves to uphold his duties. He's now got this new duty to go north and perhaps save the day. But I, I, yeah, I think Davos, I think at, at one point in time, uh, uh, Stannis would absolutely have rejected this. And Gendry, who did nothing but exist, 
would not be in chains uh, down below the castle. So I, I, I think Davos is right to do this, uh, to free him, to get him out of here. It's the right, th truly the right thing to do. Great conversation. We'll get into some of the themes and lessons of um, fathers and families and all that kind of stuff. Great Tyrion line. Under it. Tyrion, of course, got some great lines. Many of them made it into books and T-shirts. But Tyrion's saying it's not easy being drunk all the time. Everyone would do it if it were easy. I love that line. Uh, great moment, Cersei. We, we have those connections with Tyrion and Cersei. Those moments where they truly are brother and sister and there's truly some sort of compassion, empathy, maybe, sympathy at best, um, for each other, but particularly from Ty uh, Tyrion to Cersei. And just discussing her peace, as much peace as she could find as a mother. Even Joffrey, she says. Even Joffrey. And in the horrible situation she was in, lest we forget, used as a pawn, sold into a marriage with someone who did not want her, who um, treated her badly. Their hate kept the uh, realm together, right? Uh, all that great season one stuff. But it's, uh, it's easy to forget uh, as Cersei makes, uh, uh, you know, extreme, at times violent choices with what she's uh, been dealt with. Uh, I also think it's, uh, it's always hard to falter. That's why we have that uh, odd kind of rooting for Cersei, even at the end of season six. We like that wine sip. I think we get some of it. Plus, Lena Headey's just so good at it, right? But I think unlike some characters who you are perhaps loving to root against, but you love them nonetheless, I don't know. There's parts of me that sometimes wishes, uh, you know, not in the sense of like what if and the story should have done this, but just as a fan, uh, as watching this, as if it's real history unfolding in front of me. There's, there's a lot of times I wish, I wish um, Cersei was able to find some sort of peace Maybe not forgiveness, but some sort of just contentment with where she is and, and, and finding a way to move forward and move away from the trauma. Because uh, she deserved it. She deserved it. And there's moments all the way through the show that show that side of her that starts to go from season one, the cold witch uh, queen of season one, particularly the early episodes, where you definitely are rooting against her. It does start to slowly unravel, and you see a lot of the pain. You see a lot of the truth, and we're 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 racing towards season five. We're racing towards the Maggie the Frog vision and how that dominates Cersei, the fear that dominates, along with the pain and the trauma and the abuse. Uh, so I do love this moment, where in trying to talk to Tyrion about Sansa, you know what you need to do. You need to give her that child because as all these these horrible things continue to happen around her, and oh by the way, I've done some horrible things to her, but as they continue to happen, um, that will be her only thing. Because that's what I had. It's sad. I also like the moment of uh, Tyrion talking about how long does it go on. Every time we deal with an enemy, two more spring up. And Cersei just kind of saying with a with a resigned sigh, well, then I, just, I guess we'll go on for a long time. Uh, tough, tough, tough. Uh, talk about favorite moments and scenes. I'm sure there's some themes and lessons. I'm sure we can get deep and emotional on it. But I, uh, I just love the scene in which Arya Stark stabs the Frey soldier who's bragging about uh, trying to take credit whether he was there or not of uh, beheading Rob and uh, beheading the wolf and attaching the the, the wolf, uh, Grey uh, Wind, to uh, Rob's body. Oh, yeah, Arya. That's, that's a great scene. I don't need to have any deep lessons in that. I don't need to worry about the ramifications on her soul or where, where it will end up and how this kind of shifts her journey going into season four, making it a little different. Uh causing the hound to look at her in a bit of a different light now. Uh, you know, she keeps saying she'll, she keeps saying she'll kill me. She's probably capable of it. Uh, I love that, all that. We can talk about those, but I just, I just love this moment. 
because this is a little bit of justice. It's a tiny bit of justice. It's the justice we wanted. We still wanted more. We're still going to need the hope of Danny at the end of this episode, but I love that moment. I mentioned it, but Peter Vaughn returned as Maester Eamon, the late Peter Vaughn. Uh, I do love his performance as Maester Eamon. It's always so warm. Such a warm presence on the show. Um, I do love uh, the character, but I also love Peter Vaughn in that role. Final line for me, um, uh, I do like uh, Danny's line uh, when, when kind of being... You know, told, no, you're a liberator, not a conqueror from good old Jorah. But people saying people learn to love their chains. Uh, that can apply to real life in a lot of ways. Uh, just emotional uh, trapment and um, the things we go through and how sometimes that can just become part of our lives. You can have those conversations about it. But I also love what it means for Danny and what she's going to experience in Marine and how people learn to love their chains is not something you can easily deal with um marine's going to marine's gonna do a number on danny for good or bad and uh this line has a little bit more meaning too other than just i, I really do like it and uh i think amelia's great in these moments um all the stuff i was saying up uh, up top all that aside i think i think amelia clark is is uh, really warm uh really wonderful in these moments uh and, and, and handles it well and including the joy including the joy being held up and People chanting Misa, I think it's uh, it, it feels good for her as a character, and it's uh, conveyed well. Uh, we, if you got a question or a tweet, you can always reach out via the hashtag CasterlyTalk on Twitter. Follow me at Ken Napsuck. We always get great comp- uh, contributions from folks like uh, Ranger Donald, Donald Long, and our pal Eric Monroe. And uh, he uh, is a Stannis guy like me. So this is amazing how something simple like Davos learning to read can cause a chain reaction of events. When he reads Mace Draymond's plea and realizes what's coming, it not only saves his own life because he freed Gendry, but also the realm because it helps uh, to get Team Stannis to the wall. A little line of Stannis telling Davos, speaking of the Red God, you're in his army now. Maybe everyone is without realizing it. Yeah, uh, I do like this stuff. Uh, and it's what... Uh, what can happen? I, we always talk about destiny versus choice and how I, I think destiny is just the thing that takes you to the next big choice. I say that all the time because it continues to pop up in these kind of stories. And Davos makes constantly makes a lot of choices that further along his destiny and the destiny of others. And, well, Shireen does too. Her kindness, her compassion, her um, willingness and, and, and desire to just help people and be nice to people and teach Davos, my friend Davos, to read in a lot of ways. And we know it's coming with Shireen. So not saying that that makes that feel any better, but a lot of ways I think we all uh, all should thank Shireen for uh, doing this and, and, and leading to that chain of events. So great, great comment uh, there from our pal Eric Monroe. Just a couple minutes here, uh, running a little long. Uh, had a t- I wanted to talk about that stuff up top, about uh, themes and lessons from this episode. And in truth, there's, there's, um, some of the themes are not as uh, prevalent as other episodes, and sometimes in the finale episodes are not. As, you know, that some, sometimes the theme is, get ready for next season. Uh, but there's definitely some themes of winning and losing, and the how of winning. I love talking about, in, in, in the Star Wars world, where I uh, do all the work over at Force Center with Joseph, um, you know, how we fight is even just, uh, you know, is more important than why we're fighting. Um, how well can you maintain yourself in these fights? Uh, Game of Thrones, it plays a little differently. Um, survival is uh, one of the themes of last week's episode. Um, but I think winning, losing, and the how of winning. And this is where Tywin, Tywin raises some big questions. Let's talk Tywin's morality question. 
to end the war, protect the family. That's why he did the Red Wedding. And he says, uh, what's that line to Terry? You tell me how, you know, uh, uh, 10,000 deaths is better than 12 deaths at dinner, whatever the line is, you all know it. Um, he also says, a good man does everything in his power to better his family's position, regardless of his own selfish des desires. Uh, it all sounds good if you write it down on paper and it's not Tywin saying it to you. Uh, it's all a little misguided. It's all about the last name, not the first name. And there's a lot of that in this episode. That comes up a lot. Gendry's first name is probably more interesting to Davos and more important to Davos than his last name, which right now Stannis has a twisted view of that name's value. Uh, we have that. We have Tyrion and his father. Uh, and Tyrion uh, learning that his father would have killed him if not for his last name, but how that first name does not matter to Tywin. We got Shay, who only has a first name. Varys, who only has a first name. A lot of that runs through all of these uh, episodes. Um, and Theon loses his name. He's now Reek uh, through all of this here. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting, the hows of this, the hows of the winning. And, and if you hear Tywin talk uh, on paper, you're like, yeah, yeah, he's right. And that's what Andres and I and others have talked about and celebrated. Other than just Tywin, uh, you know, Charles Dance is just so great as Tywin. But in this world where survival and protecting the family is is important. Catelyn was trying to protect the family. But Tywin does it in this cold, calculated way that, quite frankly, is probably the way to do it if you want to win some battles. And this episode is very much a collection of people who have won and a collection of people who have lost and not all the people who have won in this episode and are celebrating those victories that's not going to uh, be the way it is in the end. In fact, a lot of the people who are feeling kind of defeated in this episode, arrows in their backs and legs and chests, uh, fathers wanting to kill them, um, a lot of those characters uh, aren't going to be uh, uh, always losing here. So there's a lot of uh, how of the how of winning, why it's important. Because also the big thing for me with, with just Tywin it's not just about some of the theme and, and the lesson, but the idea that he's talking about this, a good man does everything in his power to better his family's position. I didn't kill you because you're a Lannister. Family, 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 and it is what family, uh, it is family that takes Tywin down, specifically Tyrion, but also uh, I think a little bit of the, what happened with Jamie and, and Cersei. Um, she talks about just the, the reason she got peace from even Joffrey is just to have somebody, to have someone to love them. And, and a lot of that, I, I think what happens with Cersei and Jamie can be at the feet of Tywin, something he, he faces, uh, does not want to face. And all that kind of, uh, all that kind of conspires to take him down. Uh, and it's the, the bolt of, uh, the crossbow that Tyrion will fire, the couple bolts that will actually do it. But it is family what destroys Tywin, which is the one thing he wants to protect so there's ways to do it there's a lot of lack of honor always on display in the show and who survives and and who will be forgiven and who wins again the how of winning so i loved again the rat cook story that brand tells in the night for um and the point of the story i love it, it brand's like here's the story but let me let me start a podcast to tell you the theme of the story and the theme of the story is he killed a cook uh, he killed the guest beneath his roof that's why now the rat king is uh, is cursed forever, and that's something, because Bran says that's something the gods can't uh, forget, they cannot forgive it, and they, then you cut right to Walter Frey, so eventually he'll get his, and he'll get his uh, in the reversal a little bit of the story with a 
a meat pie that he shouldn't have. But again, talking about the lack of honor and 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 the show is often teaching these characters, our characters that we love, um, these lessons that honor doesn't necessarily get you to survive and allow you to survive in uh, this story, which is why, again, I think you look at the end of um, uh, uh, of Danny, and you should pick up, you want to pick up a little hope with Danny. There's someone with honor, right? It's going to be all right for her. That's not the story. I talked about fathers, there's fathers and family and loyalty displayed by the eyes. In terms of fathers in this episode, we got the good, the bad, and the gray joy. Um, Balon, not a good father. Uh, Tywin, not a good father. Davos, better father figure that he feels he's a bad father because of what happened with Mathos, but probably nothing he could have done there. Uh, and a lot of that at play. Um, Craster, bad father. Hearing that warms Aemon's heart to Gilly. Um, Sam being more of a father to now little Sam than uh, he ever would have had, especially if he was uh, with the White Walkers. Um, it's a lot of family loyalty themes running through this episode as well, uh, which I think is important following uh, the horrible events of the Red Wedding where honor and family seem to just be uh, stepped on and crushed and killed and tossed aside. So that's some of the big stuff of playing this episode here. But again, it's a finale. It's wrapping things up. It's setting the pieces. And then you're going to go to an episode one of season four and more pieces are going to be set. But hey, cannot wait to get to season four. We're going to get to that in two episodes here on Casterly Talk. Oh, Obrin Martell, Ilaria Sand. We got a bunch of new characters coming in, new situations, a new chapter in the show. Game of Thrones, we've turned the page. Um, seasons one, two, and three will be a distant memory of the old times when the cast were a bunch of babies, little tiny kids growing up on our on screen in front of us, and now we're into a new era. Bigger budgets, shows look the same, feel the same, but they're definitely shot a little bigger, a little grander. Miguel Sapochnik hasn't even stepped foot onto a set yet. The next chapter of Game of Thrones is coming, and it begins with Season 4, Episode 1, and we will be looking at that shortly here. Like I said, in two episodes next week, we're going to do a live uh, recording uh, via YouTube of the podcast. So uh, follow, uh, subscribe uh, on the YouTube channels. We grow that. But uh, as always, we're podcast first, so find us wherever podcasts are found. And hey, uh, subscribe to both. It, it would very much help. Um, always like to close out with looking at the episode stars of uh, uh, of, of, of the show. Uh, everyone's always so great. But you know what? This I'm going to give a gold star to every performer, including some of the day players. Uh, I even like those fray guys. They're just the reactions, everything. They're just, everyone, uh, just uh, great stuff in this episode. Uh, at season three, I started season three saying, let me look at it. Season three is, uh, I, I, I love all seasons of Game of Thrones, but sometimes season three falls a little flat for me. And it's definitely higher on my list uh, now because looking back and seeing this in, in conjunction with season eight, season three, and talking about turning the chapter, season three, particularly for John and Danny, big lessons learned and the focus of their characters shifts. And that focus will drive them forward, good and bad, to the very end. And I think a lot of those lessons started to be learned here. A lot of their focus started to be just picked up here. And uh, the purpose, their purposes were, were, were starting to change. So I think that's the legacy of season three for me. More on that later. All right. We are on to season four. Thank you all who uh, have been joining, uh, joining me on this watch, uh, watch along, this rewatch. 
diving into the big themes, the big lessons of Game of Thrones. Don't forget to follow me at Cadnapsack. Go to my website, cadnapsack.com, for more information on all the things I do, including upcoming comedy shows. I'll be in Washington, D.C. in December for four dates. Check it out, cadnapsack.com. If you like music, I have a music show on Mixcloud called Pop Rock and Radio. Rock and uh, pop rock playlist for all of you there. Uh, until then, we'll see you next time here on Casually Talk. Thank you.